The scripture for today is Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 28. Read along with me. Now, after these things had been accomplished, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and then to go on to Jerusalem. He said, after I have gone there, I must also see Rome. So he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he himself stayed for some time longer in Asia. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, do you know that we get our wealth from this business? You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. When they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the word of God. I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here. And we are at the second to last week of teachings on the book of Acts. So today and the next Sunday. Also, I'm acutely aware that it is uh, deep into the hottest months of Southern California. And I forgot to bring a handkerchief. And so this will work, right? Uh, you don't need one. You have fans where you are. So if you don't have a fan in front of you, you can look around you in the pews and probably find one. <laughs> I've preached through the book of Acts before and at a, at a different church, a different time in my life and different circumstances. And I found it supremely difficult. And I thought, I can't wait to preach this book with you all. Uh, because, well, every time we study things together, I feel like there's kind of a mutuality and a generosity of sharing, and I've just been less nervous about it. But it turns out the book of Acts is still supremely difficult, no matter the context for preaching, and today's sermon uh, is just kind of more of that, except for this is uh, just some really important stuff today, and I'm going to ask you to sort of suspend any kind of reactionary impulses and just sort of soak into the text and what's happening in this story and the place you might find yourself in the story. Uh, I'm going to start off with this image to get us going today. Uh, that's, does anybody know who that is helping that little girl swing the baseball bat? Who, who does that look like? Somebody's concerned because they don't want to say Jesus because there's so many things problematic about the picture. But you know it's supposed to be Jesus. The main reason you know it's Jesus is because there's a cross in the background, I think. Uh, Calvary is a very important site for Little League Baseball now and ever since then. And also Jesus has a halo, so you know that it's Jesus. Uh, listen, we have versions of this picture for pretty much everything that could happen. Uh, you're praying before you go to sleep and there's Jesus kind of beside you. There's this other picture, I, I didn't pull it up this week, of a business person who's like signing a contract. Big, like important decision this person's making and Jesus is there. 
with him signing the contract. We have this image, and there's good reason for it, that Christ is present with us in anything that's happening, even in, like, playing a game of Sandlot baseball with your friends. Uh, this is This can be playful, but there are versions of this kind of overlay that can be a bit more dangerous. And we're going to talk about the ones that can slip into danger this morning. Uh, there is a tendency in all religions, ours included, in Christianity, to baptize everything we see as somehow having an overlay or a veneer of the spiritual. And that sometimes allows us, I know this is true for me, to not question those practices, but in fact to make them sacred regardless of whether or not they look anything like the way of Jesus. Uh, here's a less benign version of that picture to me. Um, so this is a phrase that we're all pretty familiar with, in God we trust. And then does anyone know the denomination of that coin? It's a nickel. Yeah. Are we still carry nickels around with us? Yes. It's also on the back of paper money too. In God we trust. Uh, there are various reasons for why this slogan exists on our currency. However, um, not all uses of currency are baptized. In fact, the system with which we operate economically, capitalism, is not necessarily baptized. But putting this phrase on there creates mm, some balance where there is meant to be tension. Does that make sense? It forces us to not have to reckon with the complications of living in a world that pulls us in multiple directions. And God, we trust, so it must mean that anything that's happening underneath this banner is also instituted by, by the divine. There's this thing that's happening in this passage and that's happening today as well, which is we have all of these various identities. Each of us carry around with us. Uh, so who am I going to... I don't want to pick on anybody today. Just think about this. If you were to introduce yourself, what's maybe one of the first set of things you say uh, to somebody as you're introducing yourself? It's your name, maybe. It's probably where you're from. Uh, it might be what you do, your vocation, right? So, Cindy, you're a teacher. That's like a big part of your identity. Depending on the context, you might say the place you go to church uh, because that's an important part of our identity. We have all of these different markers that say who we are. So come November of next year, when it's like the height of election season, that identity is going to be activated. It's going to be like really crackly. Different times, different parts of our identity rise and different parts of our identity fall. Uh, there's a problem, though, when each of these identities start to stack. When one presupposes the other and presupposes another, so that all of these become sort of one super identity. Now, this happens when you overlay, for instance, religion, uh, in this situation, business, so the way that you understand the flow of money and economy, and a sense of patriotism or nationalism. When you start to overlay citizenship, your sort of economic standing, and whatever your religion is on top of each other, so that each of them cannot kind of slip or slide away, but they are all part of the same person, uh, that becomes an incredibly intense super identity. So much so that if you move one of these, if you say to somebody in this, like, maybe your practices of business are, uh, let's have a conversation. Uh, 
It could also threaten your sense of citizenship, your sense of spirituality, and you become locked down in all of these different ways. Uh, We're seeing this a lot these days, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. This morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 19. Uh, We were uh, in Acts 15 last time, and so we've moved through a few chapters without commentary. But let me tell you what was happening in those other chapters, just so you know the state of play as we get to Acts 19. If you've got a Bible, you can open to it. You heard Gretchen's reading today. Our reading today takes place in Ephesus. But before we get to Ephesus, Acts 16 and 17 give us hints as to what is to come. In Acts 16, there is this story where there is a, this, this young female who is following after some of these disciples of Jesus, and she seems to like be yelling and chanting and annoying them. She also seems to have some kind of possession, some kind of ability to kind of like amaze the crowds, whether she's seeing into the future or whether she can read people's emotions and sort of like predict what kind of person you are. Whatever it is, this power that she has, it's also the thing that's annoying these disciples. And so the story goes, she keeps doing this for days and Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Now, when the owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, the people who owned this young slave girl realized that they've lost money in the spiritual transaction. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. You may think that our greatest place of struggle is like in a spiritual realm. But this happens in the marketplace. It happens on Wall Street. It happens at the bank. It happens when you pull out your checkbook. There is tension at play in those areas. They brought them in front of the magistrates and they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The gospel is moving at this point. It's now moving past Uh, It's Jewish home, and it's moving into, remember, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And each time it moves out or wrong, it presents a kind of disruption. And when it moves outside of Judaism into the Gentile world, they've already got their own systems that make that world work. Uh, They're decidedly not the systems of Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people, but a whole host of other things. So you see that in this story. It says it right there. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. And then in 17, it says about another public social disturbance. They take this guy, Jason, who is in partnership with Paul and Silas. They drag him out to the authorities and they say, these people who've been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests and they were all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there's another king named Jesus. This is always going to happen, this kind of confrontation. If the disciples of Jesus tell the story well, then they tell it in such a way that will bring it into conflict with the powers that be at the time. It's just inevitable. It's what you see in these two stories, and it's what you find in chapter 19. 19 takes place in a space called Ephesus. Does Ephesus sound familiar to us? Do we know the book to the Ephesians? 
That's just a few books later in the New Testament. Paul, who's being written about in these chapters here, he goes on all these missionary journeys and he starts churches in all of these different places around Asia and the Mesopotamia. And one of them is the church that he plants in Ephesus. And so you get the book of Ephesians, which is his letter to that congregation. Well, this story tells us a little bit about what happens when Christianity makes it to Ephesus. Ephesus is the home of Artemis. I asked about Artemis and Judah, 12, like you'd done some Greek mythology in school, right? And so you started spitting off all the facts that I had read about Artemis. Oh yeah, Artemis, perpetual virgin. Oh yeah, Artemis, protects women during childbirth. Oh yeah, Art, like you knew the story. Artemis is a big deal. Does everybody have little statues of Artemis in their home? Let's see those hands. Artemis was the figure that would be behind whatever the kids were playing stickball at the time, kind of guiding them along. Artemis would have been there kind of in the background painted in watercolors for women who were giving birth. Artemis was the goddess of a lot of places, but specifically Ephesus. Ephesus was known as the protector and keeper of the shrine of Artemis. The temple to Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a big deal for this city. Now, Artemis serves as this kind of anchor for reality in the same way that we just talked about kind of super identities. There was no sense of separation of church or religion and state practices and it was all one thing. And so you move a brick, you like knock one brick out of the bottom of the wall that is Ephesus and a lot of things start to get pretty shaky. When the gospel moves in and they start talking about this Jesus who has this way to live it turns out people are just less interested in Artemis. It's very hard to be less interested in Artemis if you live in Ephesus. Because here's what happens in Ephesus. At least three times a year, if not more, you have grand festivals to Artemis. So think like the Rose Bowl times 100, and then it happens at least three times a year. Everybody participates. They would sort of take the Artemis statue you see right there, and they would parade it through the streets, and they would take it down to the water, and they would wash the statue, they would anoint it in oil, virgins, women would come and they would hug the statue. There was no way to get away from the cult of Artemis. It's just everywhere. And part of that is the souvenir industry that grows up around any kind of like local ideology. So if you're from New Orleans, then everybody who comes to town gets a few things. They get a hurricane, which is a drink that has only alcohol in it and a little red food coloring. Uh, that helps them forget the rest of their trip to New Orleans. And then they also get Mardi Gras beads because that's like our tourist thing. If you show up in New Orleans, you grab something from that culture and you take it back home with you. If you went to Ephesus, you would leave for sure with a shrine of Artemis, a little like figurine of her. And it looked something like this. It was a way for you to carry. It wasn't just a statue. It, it had like the power of, the essence of this deity. Just a little bit of it, like a voodoo doll sort of thing. And these were insanely popular. If you've got three Rose Bowls worth of festivals happening in your small town of like 100,000 people, can you imagine the amount of money that would have made for the Airbnb industry in Ephesus at the time? Right? And all of the different tour shops that would have popped up and carts and restaurants and everything. It revolves around Artemis. Pilgrimages happen to these spaces. So, you get this craftsman. He's making these statues. 
Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a whole bunch of business to the rest of the artisans. He gathers all these people together and he says this. You heard it read, but I'm going to read it again for you. Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. The language for welfare is not simply what you and I have in our pocketbook. It's the rich folks. Like these people make a lot of money. The language for welfare is excessive riches. Playing the game as the culture around you has circumscribed it often plays to your economic advantage. Disturbing the waters usually does not pay off in your checkbook. And these artisans have become pretty wealthy from selling these statues. You know we get our wealth from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius is smart. He can see what's happening well before the rest of the culture. He's not wrong. Gods made with hands are not gods. Then he spells out what will happen. And there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. The word there is like, turn into nothingness. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned. The temple is the place where they make all of their money. And she will be deprived of her majesty and that brought all of Asia and the world to worship her. Can you see the connection? If people stop caring as much about Artemis and they stop buying the stuff that is from Artemis, and if other people hear about this, they may think that Artemis is like stature, comes down a few levels, and that will, that will decrease tourism to our locale. Religion and economies deeply intertwined. But Demetrius says this phrase that he surely is not making up but has heard from these local followers, which is, let's go to the next slide. Gods made with hands are not gods. What does this sound like to you? Demetrius has been paying attention to the teachings happening among these people of the way. And these people of the way come from this big story called Judaism. And so this phrase... The gods made with hands are not gods is a refrain that we see over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. So I'm just going to open to Isaiah 44. The book of Isaiah was written at various points in the exile of Israel into Babylon. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But let me read for you what it says. I'm going to start in verse 9 of chapter 44. All who makes idols, all who make idols are tovu, are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know. And so they're going to be put to shame. Who would fashion a God or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans too are merely human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand up. They shall be terrified and they shall all be put to shame. Then a little bit later, after this writer in Isaiah makes a ton of fun of idol makers... These who make idols, they feed on ashes. A deluded mind has led them astray. They cannot save themselves. 
or say, is this thing in my hand a fraud? Is not this thing in my hand a fraud? This is the language of Isaiah. What's happening in the book of Isaiah in this section is Israel, God's people, have been displaced into Babylon. Babylon for them is an existential crisis because for Israel to be God's people is also to live in God's land and to worship at God's temple. But when all of those things disappear in the sixth century or so uh, before the common era, they're shipped off to Babylon after all of their uh, practices, traditions, religions are sacked and burned to the ground. This is called the exile period and it colors the rest of Jewish thought leading forward into the time of Jesus. But in exile... You have no markers, you have no anchor for your own kind of worldview. It's all gone. And so they live in Babylon now as displaced people. And part of Babylon, it's like, it's like Ephesus. The god there, his name is Marduk, not Artemis. And Marduk has all the same kind of festivals and all the same kind of hoopla and worship. And they would parade Marduk through the streets. And if you were from Israel, you don't worship other gods. It's like a sort of like 101 of Judaism. So you'll have no other gods before me. And so their presence in Babylon is a constant crisis. And there are various ways that they adopt or adapt to this crisis. And and this language of descent becomes really important. All of those statues you see paraded around the streets in Babylon, that's a joke. That's what the prophets say. Now this poses problems for lots of reasons, not least of which you can get killed for saying this kind of stuff, because Marduk is the god represented in the king or the emperor, whoever is in charge of Babylon. If you make fun of Marduk, you're making fun of the ruling class. You can get yourself killed. There's this language at the very beginning of this section. It says, all who make idols are nothing are tovu. The word tovu, this language for nothingness or wildness or chaos, it shows up at the beginning of the book of Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, It says, and the earth was wildness and waste. The earth was tovu vavohu. And out of that chaos, God creates a well-ordered world that God calls good. God takes tovu and makes from it something we would name as tov. Here is the exact reversal of that pattern. While God makes and fashions all of reality, there are different times where we step in and we pretend like we are fashioning the gods. And in fact, all we are making is the world's undoing. These idol makers, they are nothingness, the prophet says. This is the pattern that Israel has constantly been critiquing in its own story. And it happens with Artemis in Acts 19. It happens throughout the prophets in the Babylonian exile. It happened in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. It is just this temptation we have to image the divine, to contain it, trap it in a box, so that you can kind of set God down and know where God's supposed to be at all times. Israel develops this preference for hearing over seeing, because seeing is an 
like really fragile sense. It can be easily co-opted. This is why like TV and the internet and those kind of things can propaganda work so much better in those spaces. We are very visual creatures. Uh, but Judaism, from which Christianity is birthed, is a language of hearing. And so you've got these gods who have statues, right? You've got Artemis, you've got Marduk, you've got this calf that the people create when they can't see God enough and they've got to get God kind of down with them. Uh, But the true God exists beyond images, beyond engravings, beyond statues, which is why at the beginning of all of these different pronouncements for how you're supposed to live with this God, especially the Ten Commandments, you get the language of like, don't make graven images, don't make pictures, don't try to capture And one of the reasons given is because this God is a jealous God. And also because we would be tempted to, and we are tempted to, assume that the thing we are seeing is the true God. And that's just too small. Now, God reveals God's self in the Exodus, but not in this sort of vision of sight. But what is it? It's it's a hearing kind of experience. This is what God sounds like. This shows up in the burning bush story. When God shows up on the mountain and calls to Moses, 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 Moses says, here I am, take your shoes off, it's holy ground. You remember this story? And at some point Moses says, like, what is your name, God? And God says, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I'm the God of your ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God says, I am who I am. That's this language. This is the name you will call me from generation to generation. By this name, you will know me. Not a picture, not a vision, but a name. A name that speaks both to mystery and also to presence. When Christ shows up, Christ keeps saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's something happening in the person of Jesus Christ that is reflective of Christ's creator. Father is the language that Jesus uses. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But there is a temptation in that kind of material, visual moment where we're each going to want to hold on to. Right, and so what happens? Jesus keeps coming and and performing miracles and claiming all these big things, and then people they like latch on, right? They keep grabbing onto Jesus, and what does Jesus say each time? But don't don't hold on to me. I'm going back to the Father. Even Jesus does not let himself become an icon or an idol. Jesus slips away back into the space we call heaven, which is the space where God is. Seated at the right hand of the Father is the way the Bible talks about it. But it is hard, it is hard to not make idols out of our religious experiences, to make them smaller and safer, or to have them baptize things that are simply not of God, but just of whatever's happening around us. Uh, This is like... One of the most, if not maybe for our climate, the biggest thing we're having to deal with as the church, which is the the capture of uh, allegiance to Christ in service of allegiance to country. Um, I speak this as a Baptist in the presence of a historical American Baptist congregation 
The separation of church and state has been incredibly important for us throughout history. Uh, and the remerging of these two spheres is problematic in all kinds of ways, not least of which it is very hard to follow Jesus when your church has to be in service of the state. Um, Baptists have known this for a long, long, long time. But you remember those identities that we showed you at the beginning, the super identities of religion and politics and business, and when they start to stack? Um, well, they've been stacking again over the last few decades. For instance, in the 50s, uh, 80% or so of um, the country were, would identify as, as white and would identify as Christian. And of that 80%, it was pretty evenly split among the political parties. You could, in, you could in fact be a Republican or a Democrat and still be a Christian. That sounds crazy these days because now 40% of the population would identify as Christian and almost entirely associate with one political party. It's stacked. And also race has now stacked. So issues of uh, white majority versus uh, minority Majorities as they're becoming, those have sorted left and right. R and D, red and blue, however you want to sort them. And with all of this sorting around economic status, background related to race, and religion, all of these things have been identified with one or the other political party, which makes it impossible to talk to one another. And when you move one thing, kind of like nudge it a little bit. For instance, at any given time, there are plenty of things that we could critique about each of these political expressions in our country. Like this is just the way we've arranged ourselves in the last hundred years or so. There have been different parties at different times. There have been different countries at different times that Christians have found a way to be faithful within. It's hard to imagine because everything feels caught up in the moment of politics. But the church has not been or should not be, even if it has been, the servant of the state. And so my convictions as a Christian and your convictions as a Christian, they will always and should always supersede your convictions as a citizen. That's just a fact. But we are quite divided. Divided in such a way that you can get stuff like this on your Facebook feed and it's hard to understand where it even came from or what it's trying to tell you. Um, so this is an image of like Jesus and the Sacred Heart superimposed over a flag. And it's uh, from the account Army of Jesus, which is a sponsored account. And it says there, let's stand united to defend our faith as an army of Jesus. And you can like the page. I'm not on Facebook. I used to be. But you may have encountered this. Uh, my lack of presence on Facebook helps me love everyone better. Um, it's true. I used to be on these different social medias and I just had a hard time with people because the version of them I would find online was just as annoying as the version I was projecting online and it was extreme and it wasn't compassionate or generous. Anyway, um, 217,000 people had liked this at the time that this screen grab was taken. Uh, this is from like a Russian troll farm. This is a fake ad that was injected into our political conversation in 2016 for the express purpose of dividing us because... Jesus has become a servant of whatever status quo needs to be baptized at the moment. This 
is and should always be a desecration to those who follow the way. Jesus does not belong to one country. We know this. This is why we support missionaries around the world who are telling the Jesus story in a way that those local people can understand and embrace and, in fact, affected by those cultures. We have an expression of Christianity that has grown up at home in this nation for good and for ill. And there are all kinds of things we could say about the better angels of our nature across the last several centuries in this country. We could also say a lot of things in the ways that religion has serviced the worst of our nature. There were Bible passages claimed for slavery and for the abolitionist movement. We've been all over the place on this, but when this happens, it places the church in service of the state. What it creates is a civil religion. And that is not our faith. Civil religions have a place. That's the religion of Artemis or Marduk. It's the religion of Ra in Egypt. It's the religion that's goal is to prop up whatever the ruling class is at the time. It is incredibly natural. It has been present in all generations across history. As long as religion has been a thing, it has been co-opted for service to. And there are plenty of times where people try to co-opt Jesus. Are you about to bring the kingdom of Israel? Are we about to take back the throne? Here's a sword. Here's a shield. I've got an army. You ready to go? And Jesus says, not how this is going to go. Over and over again, this temptation presents itself. In fact, the cult of Artemis, it stands like pretty strong and solid for another two to three hundred years after this event with Paul. So even though it's threatened, it still has a lot of cultural cachet. A lot of what we have found in our country, that like 80% of the population would have identified as Christians in the 1950s, uh, not a lot of that always looks like the way of Jesus. I'm acutely reminded of those images of the lunch counter sit-ins in the South when folks were fighting for integration of public spaces, the reason that they sat in on lunch counters is because the quickest way, the most effective way to shock the system was to shock the economy. And so they chose places to demonstrate that would make evident what was possible when lived into the best versions of our stories. The civil rights movement, it is fully the language of the kingdom of God Lewis talks about the beloved community as what he imagines. King uses the same language as well. But the thing that is disrupted in that move for equality is, in fact, the economies of the time. It could tank the stock market if we integrate, if we fully live into these teachings and this path of Jesus. So civil religion, even in the South, moved in to rebalance and to bring an equilibrium. Because For a lot of cultures, ours included, religion serves to stabilize the state. That is not our job. I wrote it up here so it was real clear. I even underlined it so we didn't miss it. The church is not an agent of the state. 
The church has a certain kind of sovereign. We owe allegiance primarily and principally to God. You and I can have lots of conversations about the better ways that we might uh, address social concerns, whether it's redistribution of resources or whether how we get clean water into our communities or the relationship of our police force to our citizens or rent or like whatever the issue may be, we can have conversations around that. But all of those conversations are subsumed within a larger conversation about the way of God in the world. And our goal, our call as Christians is not to evidence the best versions of America, but to evidence the kingdom of God. And that will at times put us in conflict with, and that's going to just have to be okay. It has been this way for a long time. I'm reminded of Glenn Stassen's work, member of this church uh, in the years before he died, wrote a lot on the Sermon on the Mount. And this, if you just go back and you read his work, you can feel him contouring out this vision of a faith that is not held captive to, but free from. One of my favorite authors, William Stringfellow, talks about in one of his books that the goal is not to learn how to read the Bible as an American. It's, it's to learn how to read America biblically. And that is a different project entirely. That is what we are training for. It's to, to, to fashion our eyes, our vision, our hearing, so that we can hear the call of God and we can bring all of everything else within it. This is a denarius. Um, it would have had the image of the Caesars at the time. It was a product of propaganda. Remember, this is like social media back in the days of Jesus. Uh, and you would pass it around and you would like, here, you can have a coin, you can have a coin. It's like liking it, it passes this message on. And around here is all of the propaganda of the empire. It would have had the face of the ruling person on it and then some kind of language about like this person is the savior of the world bringing liberty and bringing peace and prosperity to all that's like normal that's that's just the way things are so there's this point in the story of the gospels in matthew's gospel in chapter 22 where the religious leaders at the time they take one of these coins and they bring it to jesus and they're trying to trap him and they say to jesus like uh do you advocate that we should pay taxes to Caesar? And this is a trick question. You can't answer it yes or no without getting in trouble. If you say, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then Jesus sounds like a collaborator with the powers at the time. And all of his own people would have rejected him. Were you like, one of these? Traitors to your people? If you say, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, then the people of Caesar have good reason to capture you and punish you. But what does Jesus say? He asks for a coin, right? He says, who's got a coin? Someone gives a coin. And what's on the coin? Oh, well, the image of, this, of Caesar. And so, see, yes, Jesus says, well, then there you have it. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. So much of the time we are given a bad question and we try to answer it, which leads us to bad answers. Jesus doesn't even answer the question, but speaks the deeper reality of the cosmos into being. Listen, whatever Caesar is responsible for, whatever Caesar has made, you can give that back. But whatever God has made, then you better give that back to God. 
This is the last word I want to show you for the day. The word is kana. Kana shows up over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. After the story of the golden calf, whenever God is forgiving and the people are coming back together with God after that moment of disruption, God talks about the dangers of idol worship as they're moving into this promised land full of other allegiances and says, when you move into this land, tear down the altars, break the pillars, cut down their sacred poles, for you shall worship no other gods because the Lord, well, the Lord's name is Kana. God is Kana. The word Kana usually is rendered as jealous, which we think is a bad term. But the word Kana means like full of passion and emotion and energy. This craving for. God will not abide split allegiance. Over the next, especially the next like 18 months, we're going to hear and see lots of calls for our own allegiance and exercising that loyalty in specific ways that serve not the church, but some other thing. My request to us is that we continue to learn together what it means to be loyal to first God, to be people of of the way, following after Christ, who resists being held and pinned down and resists paying fealty to anyone other than God, come what may. If at some point that invites you into a different posture politically, okay, we can talk about that. But this church, our church, the church is free. Free to worship free to critique, free to embrace and pray for. But we are free so that we can become bound only to God. I'm going to ask if you would pray with me as we move out of this teaching. In a moment, Pastor Leslie and her team are going to come up and we're going to sing uh, the solid rock on Christ the solid rock I sand, all other Round a sinking sand. Um, my prayer for us, for our communities, for our country, is that we would begin to loosen our grips on these identities that are shredding our relationships, our belonging, our families, that we would move back into the center for those of of us who profess Christ, that we would move the gospel back into the center of our lives such that everything else is rendered in light of the Jesus story. Pray that we would trust one another to go into conversations about anything else with generosity, Trusting 
that the presence of Christ in our lives is guiding our actions, our speech, our decisions. And in any places where our identity is creating fracture and divorce and alienation, that we would confess that the way of Jesus is not present in that space at this time in the way that we hope and imagine. Friends, would you pray with me? God, you have paid quite a price to free us from the hold of death. You have given, in fact, everything so that we might be your people. Before we belong to anyone else or any place, any ruler or power of authority, even they belong to you. God, we pray with David in Psalm 24 that the earth is yours and the fullness of it. Everything that is moves and breathes and has its being in you. And so anything we have to render, we would render only to you. We confess that we have chased after other forms of stability and security. That we have trusted in princes and powers and swords and tanks and economies and the market. But to trust you, to trust your way, your kingdom, your power, your glory forever and ever. It's what we want, it's what we need. In our truest days, it's what we claim. So be gentle with us, God, as you lead us out of captivity wherever we are captured. Bring us back into open pastures that we might find refreshing in your spirit and in your presence. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Church, I'd like to ask that uh, the four women that we will be honoring today come forward. Tasha, Esther, I'm not sure if we have Cora. She's with the little kiddos. I'm Cindy Ekstrand. I'm the vice president of our church foundation. Um, there's a little blurb in our bulletin about the foundation. Uh, it struck me as we were singing that song, the foundation, it's not going to be on sand. Um, so it kind of touched my, my mind on that. We are able to honor women, in this case, um, with a special scholarship. Our foundation was something that was set up Uh, well over 50 years ago with the express purpose of being a support to the church. And who is the church but the people of the church? And I'm, I'm so honored to stand up here with these women. Let me introduce them to you. Angel Cheng. I'm sorry, I didn't ask. Is that the right pronunciation? Good? Okay. Um, she is working on a, a D-min in recovery ministry at Fuller Theological Seminary. Cora Villanueva, she is also at Fuller. She works with our, our littles, and um, she was called of God to, to further her, her studies in a master's in theology and ministry. Tasha Cronin has been here since she was a little baby, and I'm honored to, to 
give her the scholarship. She's studying diagnostic medical sonography. And then Esther Moore came as a child um, with her, her parents to come to go to Fuller. Esther is studying at PCC to be an RN, and she hopes to be a family nurse practitioner. So I'd like you to, to honor these women with a, a round of applause, please. in the bulletin about the foundation we we hate to say this but we we say that it's the best kept secret at first baptist church we would love for you to uh, read it and find a little bit about how to become a member of the foundation and i think the foundation of anything speaks of faithfulness faithfulness from people many years ago. Um, I was looking at the list of those that were founders of the foundation, and there are none of those names left in our church. But they have given their their hearts and their souls and their finances to the church so that we can continue on to bless the church in many ways. And the same way that we bless the church with the foundation, we also bless the church through our weekly offerings. And so... I am introducing the offering. Um, In so many ways, when we give an offering, we are giving of ourselves, but we are only giving back to God what he has blessed us with. Absolutely everything that we have was a gift from God. And I pray that, that generosity will fill our hearts, that we can be generous with the things that God gives us. I'd like the the hospitality team to come forward, please. You have the yellow cards in your bulletins. If you would go ahead and fill those out, if you didn't know to do that, we also have a box in the back that you can fill those out. If you are a visitor, we would just like your information. And on the back, there's a place for prayer requests, and we have people that pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God that hears our prayers and we are thank you we thank you that you are a god that supplies our needs we know lord that you are generous to us in many ways and help us lord today to be generous to you giving back the gifts that you have given us we pray lord that you would open our hearts and open our hands and let us give with a generous heart we love you and thank you in jesus name amen